Welcome to Bit Splitting with Daniel Jalkut. Today's guest is Amanda Wickstead, the first iOS engineer at Zynga and founder of Meteor Grove Software. Today's show is sponsored by HelpSpot. Customer service is your best marketing. Make every ticket count with HelpSpot. Welcome back to Bit Splitting. My guest this time is Amanda Wickstead, a professional game developer who has worked for companies like Namco and Zynga, among others. Now she is traveling with her boyfriend while running her own consulting company, Meteor Grove. Welcome to Bit Splitting, Amanda. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, it's interesting. Um, I want to talk more to you about this this current state of your life, traveling around, living in lots of different rental homes. Uh, kind of it looks like I think mostly focused on the U.S. right now, but you're sort of um, really baseless. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the things I think is maybe interesting, maybe that's an interesting tie back to your very early life, because, you know, to meet you, you are, you know, uh, as far as I can tell, as an American growing up in America, in California, you are an all-American woman. (laughs) And uh, I wouldn't have guessed upon meeting you, I think I met you for the first time at C4 in Chicago. Um, And I wouldn't have guessed that you had grown up significantly in Saudi Arabia. Um, Yeah, I guess uh, a lot of people first meeting me wouldn't guess that because, yeah, my my parents are American and and I'm American. And uh, for the most part, I did spend my childhood overseas. I was born in Paris, France. Um, My parents are teachers. They uh, they generally teach in overseas um, international and American schools. So they were teaching in at the American School of Paris um, in the middle school when I was born. And then uh, we moved to Kuwait for a few years. And then we moved to Arizona for a few years. And then Saudi Arabia when I was nine years old. So I spent, um, I guess, most of my childhood overseas. And then I came to the U.S. for high school in uh 1997. Cool. So um, you said both of your parents are teachers. Uh, is there something, is it, kind of, is it kind of in their blood to want to travel around the world? Or is there something specifically about the stuff they teach that makes it, I mean, obviously, Arizona yeah, doesn't, really, doesn't really mesh with the other locales that yeah. they ended up in. Yeah, they're, they're from Arizona. They both went to the U of A. Um, same with me. <laughs> I'm a legacy, I guess. So, um, yeah, they, they definitely, their goal was to uh, live overseas and travel as much as possible. They, they still do that. They just retired last year um, from Saudi Arabia, and now they live in South Africa. And they spend a lot of time traveling um, around the world. So I guess, yeah, it's in my blood <laughs> to do that too. And now you have a great excuse to visit South Africa, I guess. Yep. <laughs> I was there a few years ago to visit them and we went on safari and stuff like that. Oh, that's really cool. Um, so I was uh, doing a little research on you and I discovered from your blog that when you were two, according to your parents, they said that you wanted to be Tina Turner when you grew up. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they told me this a few years ago that um, I guess I was just really into Tina Turner's music in, you know, the early 80s when I was two. And uh, they asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I didn't know that, you know, Tina Turner wasn't a profession. 
<laughs> but, well, it could, it yeah. could be, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there, I'm sure that the number of Tina Turner impersonators is in the <laughs> low thousands, at least. Mm-hmm. And so you might, you might have a backup, uh, you might have a backup career up your sleeve there. Yeah, true. <laughs> Some big shoes to fill, though. Now, when you were, according to the same uh, blog entry, when you were four, you started turning a little bit towards the technical in that you said you wanted to be an astronaut when you grew up, but you had at that time still um, some uh, show business aspirations because you said you wanted to be a ballerina astronaut. Very important (laughs) niche. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of me still wants to be a ballerina astronaut (laughs) for sure, especially after um, on, on Monday, having seen the, the, uh, the music video that, Chris Hadfield, the Canadian astronaut, made. Did you oh, see right. that? Oh right, I, you know, I saw it passing by on Twitter, but I didn't. Uh, I didn't. It's tune excellent. Into it. Yeah, you should definitely watch it. He does a cover of David Bowie's um, "Space Oddity." Oh yeah, um, I saw a picture of that. Yeah, it's it's awesome. <laughs> I was so curious though. I didn't. I didn't look. I, I was obviously my interest was peaked, but then I didn't look at. I was thinking to myself, how do, how do the, how does that make, how do you make sound and. Yeah. In zero gravity, or does that I think work? They, they edited it um, after, like, I guess he sent the videos down to Canada or whatever. So uh, I don't think he did the editing himself. I think that was other people. But um, he does play the guitar on the space station a little bit. That's pretty and cool. I guess because there's, there's air in the space station <laughs> that works. Yeah, but, I guess so. But I, I just saw the picture. Wasn't he? He was floating, right? So yeah, I don't yeah. understand. I guess you have air, and I guess you can breathe. Obviously, okay. I need to go back to. Uh, I need to go back to uh, elementary physics uh, <laughs> school. I think, um, but uh, I just like this ballerina astronaut is kind of like such a great combination of words because <laughs> it represents. Um, it rep- I, I think that you know, to do like a pop psychological analysis of you, it kind of does represent or it could represent these like two relatively conflicting ambitions that um, I just like the idea of um, somebody like having a real because, you know, at that time you weren't you you obviously you were four, you weren't actually planning out your future, but you were um, I love I have a four year old son, uh, Henry, and he does the same kind of thing where it's like, there's no reason you couldn't be an astronaut who specializes in ballerina <laughs> or in ballet. Um, and the, the post I read this on sort of led to, or it was sort of culminating, I think, in the, you know, then you said in high school you wanted to write the great American novel, and now you are a game programmer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there was sort of an implication there that the being a game programmer in some ways ties together all of those loosely connected ambitions. Yeah, I guess it does um, in, in that it's a creative profession. Like when you're, when you're making games, I'm not really a game designer, although I have you know, dabbled a bit, but in the game industry, you're, you're kind of making fictional um, like worlds for people to play in. So um, yeah, the creative aspect is, is uh, I guess the part that, that draws me to it. Um, and the, the, the creative aspect of programming in general, even if you're not working on games, is definitely what draws me to it. Um, but I definitely didn't always uh, 
want to be a programmer. I didn't know what programming was until I got to college, really. But um, I was I was very interested in dance growing up. I was interested in astronauts because <laughs> um, actually my my dad was. Uh, um, do you remember the the teacher in space program? I think uh, on the for the Challenger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, my dad was one of the finalists to be one of one of the teachers in space. He didn't make it, obviously, right. but um, or luckily, I luckily, guess. I guess so. Yeah. Space was a big uh, a big topic of conversation in my house growing up. <laughs> I can imagine. So I think- yeah. Well, that was a big, I mean, we were, we were, uh, I'm not sure exactly your age, but I think we were kids when, you know, at about that time when the space shuttle was still a huge part of like kid popular culture. I I think these Mm -hmm. days, because there's not much, I don't, you know, I don't think they're doing, when was the last space shuttle flight? Um, it just, it, 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 (laughs) Yeah, I don't even know. But like when we were kids, it was it seemed like oh, this is we still had like I think that tail end of the, you know the 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 landing on the moon, (laughs) then like Mm -hmm. the seventies happened and there was all this space shuttle activity in the eighties, and I think we me as a kid it was just like oh of course we're going to be we're we're next we're going to go soon you know the teachers are going and then obviously the kids will go and everybody (laughs) at school knew what the space shuttle was and it's like an image of it burned into my memory mm-hmm. um but that must have been pretty that might, I, it must have been pretty exciting for you how old were you when um when your dad was final a finalist for that uh i think i was like th- three or four i was uh i'm 31 i was born in 1981 so i was pretty young i have vague memories of this right it was it probably yeah it probably wasn't something that you were like you didn't have like friends. You were like saying, "Well, my dad's going to go to space." Yeah. <laughs> no, not yet. So, um, you, I think you said you lived in Saudi Arabia from the age of. Did you say seven? Nine. Nine. Yeah. Nine. And so, um, I'm assuming it was an English language school. Was it like yeah. one of the schools your teacher, your your parents were teaching at as well? Yeah, yeah. It was an American system school, but um, the. The um, company that uh, that ran the school—it's an oil company called Aramco. Um, it's a really international company. Um, people from all over the world work there, like Pakistan, Canada, India, Australia, um, a lot of Texans. So uh, the the culture was was really international, but the the school system was American and in, in English. Interesting. So is it a situation where? The oil company is employing people that they know are from all over the world and who for whom English would be the closest common tie and and therefore they're like actually funding the school and yeah and, yeah exactly the school is the school employees are all employees of the company technically. interesting so yeah and we lived on a on a compound kind of like um, kind of like an air force base where like everybody on the compound uh, works for the same organization. Right. That, that looking, I mean, from an outside perspective, that sounds a little surreal. It must've just felt Mm -hmm. like the most normal thing in the world to you as a kid. Yeah. I mean, it's, it was totally normal. I didn't really know any different. Um, but, uh, I guess it was, it was also kind of, um, let's see, idealist 
in a sense. Like everybody lived in, in pretty much similar houses, like cookie cutter houses. And everybody went to the same school and all the families were uh, like two parent families and all the parents were like between like 35 and 60 because you have to retire at 60 at that age. So there was no old people. There was nobody between the ages of like 15 and 35-ish because for high school, everybody had to go uh, off to boarding school because there were no American high schools on the compound. There are now. That that rule has changed. But when I was there, there weren't. Um, So it was kind of like – like that movie Pleasantville, I yes. guess. Like the dream, the dream of the 1950s. <laughs> right. You don't, and I guess you wouldn't have like even much variability in the kinds of, you know, the specific people who were around. Um, you probably didn't have people passing through much. Um, no. Yeah. Not at all. I'm getting the more kind of uh, <laughs> my, instead of Pleasantville, my mind jumped more. Um, uh, maybe not not conspiracy oriented, but just maybe entertainment oriented towards the uh, the <laughs> island colony of Lost, and the yeah. the um, the uh, have you seen that Have you seen that show? Um, I've heard of okay. it. I never watched it. Uh, there's yeah. this. There's, it's, there's just kind of like this. Um, you know, there's obviously like the, the the crashed people live like in campfires on the island for a long time, but there's also this kind of uh, cookie, like you were saying, kind of cookie cutter houses, like utopian colony uh and -hmm. all the food has like a label from this one company and and uh kind of just made me think of that but um Mm -hmm. so so uh as far as um as far as the exposure to computers and stuff you said you didn't start programming until or you didn't even really know what programming was until you went to college um Mm -hmm. but was there any exposure to computer stuff in this uh environment yeah, for sure. Um, my my parents got our first computer when I was about four. It was an Apple IIe. Um, and so I guess I had computer exposure from a, a very young age. I used to play games like Frogger and um, this game, I can't remember its name. Something about a goose. I'll look it up okay. and send you it later. But um, there were, yeah, games on those big... Uh, big black uh, floppy disks. Oh yeah, like five and a <laughs> five and a quarter, or maybe even bigger. Maybe no. I guess with the Apple, yeah. it's probably five and a quarter inches. So. Yeah, five and a quarter. Um, yeah. So uh, I, computers have been a part of my life since since as long as I can remember. But um, when I when I lived in Saudi, uh, the internet wasn't legal yet. There, like you could make a long distance call and connect to like AOL or whatever overseas, but that would be expensive. Um, but there wasn't like local access to the regular internet. Um, but we did have local bulletin board systems, BBSs, um, which were huge, <laughs> like for the, the kids there. Um, we'd play MUDs on them and just chat and all kinds of things. So that, that came around when I was probably in sixth or seventh grade. That's really interesting because you're, you are a few years younger than I am. You're about six years younger. And I grew up in Santa Cruz area in California where the internet certainly was legal. But um, the timing of it was that I was probably about the age where you were into BBSs um, and there just really wasn't a significant internet 
alternatives. So for us, it was, <laughs> oh, this is a way that we can get online and talk to and make new friends, you know, across town. Mm-hmm. Um, did you end up meeting people from outside your living compound at all? Or is, was that part of the BBS attraction or was it? Um, yeah, because there were, there were several different compounds, um, all the, part of the same company. I think there were four but they were all on the on the eastern coast of Saudi Arabia. So I did meet kids from the other compounds and that was a lot of fun. Now I'm kind of I'm kind of in, intrigued by this. The fact, I mean, I'm I have to say up front I don't know a whole lot about Saudi Arabia except for, you know, stuff I've learned here and there. Um I I I know for example that like alcohol is illegal there. Um I didn't know that internet had been not le- had what was was illegal, I guess for you know everyday people. Um, mm-hmm. It uh, sort of occurs to me though, it would I w- like I wouldn't be surprised if you had said something like, "Internet is not legal, but because we lived on this multinational corporation compound, we could get it." And it sounds like that was definitely not the case. No, but it is it is legal now. I think I forget when exactly they changed the rules but um yeah saudis have access to the regular internet now so i know i know some uh i know some like the story of the uh of the brooklyn brewing company i think goes back to um the founder having been a correspondent in maybe saudi arabia but you know some some country that didn't allow alcohol so he learned how to um, I guess with other expats, they had like a kind of a system of brewing their own beer. Um, but internet, not so easy to, uh, fabricate on one's own. <laughs> no, we did our best though with the, with the, B- BBSs. the, the BBSs, mm-hmm. right? Well, that's cool. Um, as far as, uh, you know, I, you mentioned that you had it, you know, obviously we, we, we mentioned the ballerina astronaut ambitions, but apart from that, you, um, also carried that interest in becoming a dancer on for some time. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that started in Saudi Arabia? Did you have? Yeah, yeah, it did. I, um, there was a, a a dance teacher there, and um, so a lot of the a lot of the girls on the compound would take dance lessons from her, and she was actually an amazing teacher. Like compared to all the teachers I've had since in the U.S., um, she was pretty great. Her name was Kay. Seabold, um, shout out, (laughs) but, um, so she taught tap and jazz and then later lyrical and dance line. So I took, uh, as, as many classes from her as I could. And, um, we would help, we would hold like performances every year at the end of the year. And it was always a big deal because we'd, um, we'd import our costumes from the U S and they were all like flashy with sequins and it was a lot of fun. (laughs) So then, um, uh, I continued dance, although I, I shifted more to ballet when I was in high school in the U S and then, uh, I guess I kind of like a lot of 18 year olds, like I didn't, I didn't realize like what's a viable career and what's not (laughs) when I got to college. So I, I figured like, I, I was really into fiction writing back then. So I was like, okay, I'll, all double major in creative writing and dance and then I'll be 
a dancer and a writer when I grow up. <laughs> and I, right. I quickly realized that neither of those is really feasible. Um, I mean, writing is a little more feasible than dance, but um, like I wasn't, I I knew I wasn't going to be a part of any um, professional dance company at that by that point. So, um, I mean, it, it was kind of like a letdown, but at the same time, I, I discovered programming and totally fell in love with it. So it, it's not really that sad. <laughs> you had a soft landing into programming. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, the nice thing about programming is even those of us who, you know, like compared with something like dance, um, even those of us who have not been rigorously training since like the age of three have a chance and a really good chance of becoming professionals mm-hmm. and successful at it. Um, it's kind of interesting. I was thinking when you were saying that, uh, you know, on my, on my last episode, I talked to Brent Simmons and he also had ambitions of becoming a, a writer and, uh, he was just kind of his his like aha moment was oh if I want to become a writer and he wasn't it's kind of like you were saying like it's it's it, it was feasible but he was saying you know if I want to become a writer realistically I probably have to like fund myself for ten years or something mm-hmm. in the hopes of like getting that lucky break or you know getting that level of skill I guess and yeah with programming the good news is you can often get paid from day one even if you're not yet the best programmer on earth yeah for sure it's um i think we're fortunate in that uh programming is a really sought after skill um a lot of people like in this day and age are willing to pay a lot of money to programmers whereas um writing is is not as much sought after (laughs) and it's i think it's just a matter of of being in the right place at the right time and being and having a a, a career interest that um, is really lucrative. Right. Like there was probably a time when the number of people trying to become dancers was so small, like in the, hundreds of years ago, mm-hmm. probably <laughs> when if you happened to be the one who was actually really good at it, then it was quite lucrative. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it, you're right that uh, it's a great time. If you happen to fall in love with programming these past 30 years or more have been have been a great time for that um i was kind of curious thinking more about your you know you're mostly growing up in saudi arabia uh having american parents um you went to school in america in california for high school Mm -hmm. and then you went to college in arizona i was wondering how much exposure to american culture did you have during your childhood years where you where you did you get the chance to visit America often or yeah we did we went um back to the states probably about once a year um sometimes every two years but uh so yeah we got some exposure that way but like um most of the year there was not much like we got one top 40 radio station and um we got a few magazines although they were heavily censored like like manually censored with black markers um the uh censors would go through every page and like like black marker out any um like women showing skin or even tear out pages sometimes of like articles they didn't like um so like 17 magazine was probably about half as as thick as a as one that you would buy off the shelf in the U S so we got like a little bit of culture and there was a movie theater that showed one movie a week. And it was also usually highly edited. 
Um, so it'd be like, you know, 45 minutes long or something. Um, and that's, that's about it. Yeah. That's, that's something that sort of surprises me again, thinking I'm sort of just, I guess I'm giving too much credit to the idea that a big company like this would have some sway or that they would somehow be, I guess, above the law is what I'm, is what I'm sort of imagining. And, um, you know, obviously you said now internet is legal. It must be the case for folks living in a situation like this today that they can just get online unless they're like, are they dynamically, do you know what the situation is today? Like if you went online to 17.com and you were growing up today in one of these compounds, would it be as uh, sort of like stranded from, from the culture? Um, I'm not really sure. I think... I think there probably is a firewall. I, I know it's nothing near where, like, like China's, for example, is. But I think they do um, probably block out some sites. Uh, I'll have to ask my mom because she would know better than I would because she's lived there up until last year. But yeah, I don't know. I'm. It's. It's. I think just the nature of information and the internet is. It's just going to become increasingly more difficult to keep people from finding out what they're looking to find out, you know, whether it's, right. you know, the latest teenage fashion styles or, you know, music or, or whatever. Right. And people have techniques these days for tunneling through firewalls, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. um, so I know that you, um, you mentioned that you had to leave Saudi Arabia to go to high school because they did not have an English language high school for you to attend. Uh, Mm -hmm. you ended up in Pebble Beach, California, actually, I think at a a high school that I visited once on my high school track team from Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and I'm curious whether, you know, obviously, um, everybody in everybody that was sort of your same age group back in Saudi Arabia, if they spoke English, they probably all went off to different different parts of the world or um and then your parents i guess chose stevenson and pebble beach as your destination um mm-hmm. just can you give us a sense of what that was like coming from this long child you know long childhood life in saudi arabia mainly and then popping out into california where you definitely had access to Seventeen magazine. You had access to probably um, even in, even in Pebble Beach, which for for listeners who don't know, it's not like exactly the you know the roughest like leading edge of of like um, you know m- modern culture type of place. <laughs> right. But you still had access to kids probably talking about things that didn't get talked about as much back in yeah yeah for sure um i think coming to the u.s as a as a 15 year old when like it's the prime time for like being really interested in in culture like um music and fashion especially um and junk food and things other things we couldn't get in saudi arabia um it was a blast like i had i had so much fun just being dropped out into california culture and like uh, yeah, being able to get all these things that I didn't have access to that I knew about but had never experienced. Um, it was pretty awesome. Also, that was around the time when um, when Napster started happening. I think I was a junior in high school. So, um, 
I wouldn't have had access to that in Saudi Arabia. Right. That was also an awesome thing. As, a, as an exposure to things like music and... Yeah, yeah. and also like real life record stores and, and malls and all the things that teenagers are into. <laughs> See, it sounds, <laughs> it pretty it great. sounds lucky. It sounds like it was lucky that you had this hunger for the culture. I could imagine some kids maybe with just a different personality or who had maybe taken as taken as sort of rightful and good the the limitations of Saudi Arabia could have could have been kind of like a panic experience popping out into America and having mm-hmm. all these things that were forbidden before suddenly being kind of not just available but thrust on you. Yeah, I mean I, I know a lot of kids uh coming to boarding school in the US from Saudi Arabia like kind of had a culture shock, especially if they had lived in Saudi their whole lives. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't difficult for me. Um, I think I was just really excited about it the whole time. Well, I want to take a moment to thank my sponsor this time, HelpSpot. HelpSpot is a customer service must. It allows you to convert chaotic, disjointed email interactions into structured help desk tickets that can be easily managed. And it provides customers with self-service opportunities using the Integrated Service Center. Real-time reporting makes it easy to keep tabs on what's happening and identify problems and trends more quickly. Make your customer service what sets you apart from competitors and give HelpSpot a try at HelpSpot.com. And if you use the coupon code BITS3, you'll get a $100 discount off the price. Now, I know a lot of folks who are in charge of customer service, whether it's because they run their own company or they work for a small or large company doing that job, they just use a regular email client to handle that. And that can be great at the beginning. But uh, trust me, from my own experience, I know that using a plain Jane email client can get old real fast when you start getting repeat inquiries about the same types of topics, uh, repeat inquiries from the same customer and you don't remember any of the relevant details pertaining to that customer. Having some kind of service like HelpSpot to help coordinate all of your responses to customers and to allow customers to help themselves can be a real plus for your business. Once again, that URL is helpspot.com. Um, so, so Pebble Beach... Um, Stevenson Prep School, and all this time you are probably studying, you know, standard high school stuff, but um, programming is still off your radar, and Mm -hmm. you are um, maybe interested in literature, thinking about writing this great American novel already when you're in high school, (laughs) or is that still just... uh, Yeah. Yeah, I was... was, um I was really into writing throughout high school. I, I wrote for several hours a day, like after I'd finished my, my homework. Um, uh, it was it, almost an addiction, I guess I want to say, but not, not in a bad way. I was just um, really into it. And then uh, that kind of faded after, like during college, I guess, I, I, when I switched into being more technical and programming. Um, but yeah, I, I spent a lot of time writing. I could I could see it being comparable to programming in that sense. Like it's a it's yeah. a, it's a solitary yeah. pursuit of a refined product that you have to spend lots of time 
iterating on mm-hmm. it. Um, I was curious if you had like, uh, what were your, what were your sort of like, like when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, it was like, um, whatever, you know, whatever group of like, I was, you know, vaguely into literature and idea of writing. And, you know, for me, it was like the revival of like beat literature worship and, um, (laughs) you know, Jack Kerouac and things along those lines. Was there a particular era or genre of fiction that you were inspired by? Um, yeah, several things. Uh, one was, um, automatic poetry, which is, I guess, a, a, a style of poetry where, um, let's see, it's a little hard to explain, but, uh, I'd consider writers like, uh, Susan Kinsolving and E.E. E. Cummings kind of, that was the style I was going after and the, the style I liked a lot. Um, and then, uh, for fiction, um, I remember one of my favorite novels at the time was Dune. Um, I think a lot of nerdy kids' favorite novel is Dune. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a lot of <laughs> nerdy adults as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was kind of my, my fiction style that I, that I appreciated most. Um, and then I also uh, was interested in philosophy at the time. Uh, uh, anything uh, postmodern or having to do with aesthetics... Um, let's see. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff like that. Cool. So, uh, I guess you, you mentioned earlier that you ended up going to the same college that your parents had gone to. That must Mm -hmm. have been an influence, not a coincidence. Um, was it? Well, it was more, um, in-state tuition was a factor. (laughs) Oh, so you, as opposed to, I see. So your parents maintained some kind of in because their 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 residence was there even though they were yeah. working abroad. Yeah, I understand that. I, I had a discount uh, education in California because of because of my parents living there. So that's always yeah. A, I wished I did. I I wanted to go to either UC Berkeley or um, UC San Diego. Those were some of my top choices, but um, I wasn't in state even after living in California for three years by that point. Cause I wasn't independent. Right. Um, right. There's back then. tricky little thing. So then you had the, you had the choice of whether you wanted to risk the possibility of ever going to college again by taking like time to establish residency. Right. Yeah. And I think at the time it was, you had to be independent in two for in California for two years and not just one. That sounds right. Yeah. So, yeah. So back to Arizona, you went and, um, can you remember, is there an, like an aha moment you can remember when you first, cause you know, we've already alluded to the fact that you didn't really get into programming until you were there. Was, was this a situation where you accidentally took a programming class or something like that? Yeah. Well, actually I, I took a, a, a detour. I went to, um, Tulane university in New Orleans for my freshman and half my sophomore year of college. And that's where I, that's where I discovered programming um i i was taking um calculus my first semester and a lot of the kids in my class were computer science majors they they were the kind of kids that had been programming since they were like 12 and they knew they knew what they wanted to do since they were young so um since calculus was required they were all in the class and i was like uh like like in a study group i remember one night um 
all the other kids were, were half working on their computer science homework. And I was like, what is that? What are you doing? Show me. And so they, they did. And I was like, this looks really cool. I'm going to sign up for computer science 101 next semester. And then I did. Oh, that's cool. So you just saw, you, you, you know, you're a real programmer when you see your friends doing the homework and you're like, that's for me. <laughs> yep. And then did you end up, um, you know, I, I only, I only briefly really mentioned it that you, you know, you, you have, you've been working in games for your entire adult professional career. Um, what were, um, were games something you started programming in college or had, were you working on other types of projects? Did you have any secondary projects to the, um, the classwork? Um, mostly in college, like whenever I got the chance to write a game for a class assignment, I did, but, um, I didn't know when I was in college that I wanted to go into game development. Like I considered it as like definitely probably the most fun, uh, career you can have with a computer science degree um but i didn't really know like what what other kinds of things you can work on <laughs> i guess um when i after i graduated uh a friend of mine was had just started working for a, a small game startup in tucson um and he told me they had just gotten a, a contract um to do a bunch of games for uh for a client and they were aggressively trying to hire because they didn't they didn't have enough people to do this contract um so I was kind of in the right place at the right time and and got hired um at that job that was Octopi um in Tucson which later became uh Sony Online Entertainment or Sony Sony Tucson um okay so uh yeah that was that was how I got into the game industry having a friend that worked at a company that needed more programmers. <laughs> cool. So you started there. Did you start the, did you start there right after school or did you technically yeah. start there during school? Yeah. I think I started like two or three weeks after I graduated. Wow. That's a great transition for somebody coming straight out of college and you didn't have to move or mm-hmm. anything to start, to start getting a paycheck. That's the way it, that's the way it works. Uh, when yeah. you're right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, um, I, one of the things uh, I've read about you, to correct me if this is wrong, is that you were Zynga's first iOS developer. Yeah, that's true. That's pretty cool. That's a nice, that's a nice resume item, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, um, I think so. I mean, but uh, I think it's kind of depressing. Lately, Zynga's been kind of getting a bad reputation. Um I guess more and more. I'm not sure why. I think people just don't like th- their style of games. So it's kind of becoming like I've, I've talked to other ex Zynga employees that feel like they kind of almost don't want to mention that they worked there, which is sad because it was an awesome place to work. I had a I had a great time there, and everybody that I worked with was super smart and super driven. Like I'd never worked in a place where everybody was top notch and competent. Um, and it was great. <laughs> and I got to work on huge, big name projects like, like Farmville and Mafia Wars and Zynga Poker and stuff like that. So I'm still proud of, to have Zynga on my resume. <laughs> well, I, I definitely think you should be proud. And I will confess that I'm one of those people that probably um, denigrates Zynga as a company sometimes. Um, 
but I, th- I think it's uh, w- no matter what somebody thinks about maybe the tactics that Zynga uses uh, or or their you know their aesthetic whatever they've mm-hmm. always made software that performs in a way that I, I don't know if I should say always I should say they have many times made software that <laughs> performs in a way that achieves the goal of being like really engaging and, and riveting and fun and encourages people to connect with other people and all of that stuff, pulling all that stuff together is an engineering accomplishment. So, you know, good for you for being part of that. I think that is something to be proud of. And sort it sort of reminds me, um, when you, when you, when you described it the way that you did, um, it reminds me of people who maybe went to a university that then later for whatever reason takes on a, a tarnish, right? And it's like, well, it was mm-hmm. a great school. And then there was this, you know, giant crime event or something. And then, and then <laughs> yeah. like Penn state. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sad when that happens because there's nothing you can do about it. Like that's right. And sometimes it works the other way around. Like um, I worked at Apple when it was absolutely one of, you know, one of America's great tech companies, but it was, it was a, a, a it was a recovering tech company. And, mm-hmm. and then I have like this reverse advantage where it's like, people are more impressed that I worked at Apple now than they were when I was working there. Um, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a irony, I think. But, um, anyway, the, uh, before you got to, I think it was before you got to Zynga, you were working for Namco who Mm -hmm. I know primarily as the makers of Pac-Man. Yeah. I think that's still primarily (laughs) what they're known for. for. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and was that a pac was that a pac man didn't didn't he work on the i o s pac man yeah game? yeah i did um myself and another developer were uh we reported pac man and miss pac man um to the iphone uh to have it ready for app store launch day so the uh the first day that people could download uh apps on the app store pac man was in there so so uh I know that you started at this company, Octopi, and I don't believe, I believe that was um, probably just before the iPhone was even out. Yeah, that was 2005. Um, So uh, I was working on mobile devices for Octopi, um, mainly Nokia handsets. Um, So they they were running uh, the J2ME platform, Java for mobile devices. Um, So this is kind of akin to to Android and then it's Java running on mobile, but it was, um, obviously at the time way less, uh, way less powerful devices and way smaller screens. Right. Um, like I remember one of the, one of the handsets I was working on, um, like the resolution was, uh, 176 by 130, I think like it was pixels. It was a really tiny screen. Um, and big, big pixels at that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you could make games like uh snake or something. And, yeah. Yeah. We made a version of snake. <laughs> cool. Let's see that. There's another resume item for you. <laughs> um, and, and I imagine, um, so, so you sort of had this, this luxury for somebody who would end up being, having such a significant list of accomplishments on mobile devices. You sort of maybe were lucky to have landed right into a mobile 
gaming startup right out of school. Mm-hmm. What was the what was your reaction when smartphones started coming out, and in particular when you saw a phone like the iPhone? What was your did you immediately adapt that in your mind to the idea that this would be a good gaming platform? Yeah, for sure. Um, before, so I I had a, a Nokia sixty six eighty two. Um, before the iPhone came out, which was sort of like a, a proto smartphone, like it had a web browser. Um, it was a, a WAP web browser, um, but the like the data plan was not structured such that it was, you know, ever worth using because it was like I don't know twenty five cents a, a meg or I don't know what it was, but it was it was too expensive. Um, so uh, I mainly. Uh, played games that either I wrote or, or got somehow because they're pretty easy to install on that device. But, um, so yeah, I guess when the iPhone came out, I was, I was coming to it kind of from the opposite side that, that most people I know came to it from like most developers. I mean, um, most people had been Mac developers, um, and, and therefore like new objective C and new Coco. Um, but I was coming to it from like, mostly not knowing. I mean, I took a objective C course in college, but um I mostly didn't know <laughs> what I was doing, but I was very familiar with the constraints of developing for mobile. So, so yeah, I think it was lucky that I was I had been working in mobile before. You said you you took an objective C class in college and that in itself seems like it was very lucky. It doesn't seem like the kind of thing many schools would have offered back then. Yeah, we had uh one professor. He was mainly a, a networking professor but he was also a, a mac enthusiast um and he offered a an elective i think there were five kids that took it wow um, and have you have you kept up with the uh with the other kids that were in the class with you do you know if, if yeah. they have ended up in this profession and um kept with objective c have they returned to objective c at all let's see i'm i'm friends with two of them still on facebook one is uh, no longer a programmer. She's a professional model now <laughs> in LA. But and the other one is teaching programming in Thailand. He's American also. So I guess neither of them kept up with Objective C. But right. Well, it's lucky that they had that early exposure. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there's a, there's a real problem with software engineers bailing on programming to become professional models. We really need yeah. to put an end to this brain drain. Yeah. So. Um, you know, we had these great successes. I think, you know, looking at looking at your resume and your history from an outside outside point of view, I would count Zynga and the games that you worked on for them as probably the most notorious. Uh, uh, not notorious, not maybe is not the right word, but the most um, most the, the the achievements you've had that have had the most widespread attention. Mm-hmm. Um, people if you meet somebody at a party and you say, I worked on, or I wrote Farmville, they know what you're talking about often. Right. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you're not working at Zynga anymore. Actually, as we alluded to earlier, um, you're now sort of traveling around without a permanent base, traveling with your boyfriend, um, running your own consulting company called Meteor Grove. And, it's about as it's about as opposite of the high profile Zynga stuff as you could go. Um, it's probably a situation where 
your clients, you're not, you're, you're not by default usually, you know, celebrating the specific products you've worked on. Um, mm-hmm. How does that feel to sort of be out of the limelight? Is that a relief to you or is that something you sort of miss having the, uh, the big branded apps under your belt? Um, well, I guess I was never, I, even right after Farmville came out, I was never really in the limelight, so to speak. Like I was not a household name or celebrity. <laughs> so um, I guess it hasn't really changed much. Uh, I think um, the kind of games I'm working on now and the kind of like working environment I have now is a lot more, um, I guess, exactly what I want. Like I work from home. Um, I work uh, right now. I'm working on a game where I'm the sole programmer. Well, my my client is a little bit uh, learning how to program too. I'm I'm helping him learn. So it's kind of just the two of us on this project and a contract artist. So um, I really enjoy working on a tiny team like this. Um, I I do miss like at Zynga we had. Um, I think one of the main reasons. Zynga did so well is because they have so many um, producers who are are numbers focused. Um, like they they track every event that happens in every game, and they really optimize for um, for user retention and and fun, basically, as well as they can define it. Um, so, I've kind of we're missing that now. Like I haven't I haven't met any um, like lean startup style numbers focused people since I left Zynga but uh it's in a way a little more chill and a little more intuitive instead of numbers based now like we don't know if if some feature we're going to add is going to work but we're going to do it anyway because it sounds fun type right. of thing no a b testing or right uh, <laughs> all that so it's kind of like the um I always think of the kind of classic rift between Google's approach and Apple's approach and Google is very numbers based and very technical and mm-hmm. Apple is very like well if if our really smart aesthetic people think it's great then it probably is mm-hmm. um, but I can relate to the um, you know the sort of lack of you know a company like Zynga has the luxury of you know being able to hire a staff that can just look at numbers or a staff that can you know, focus on probably they have a staff for focusing on specifically how you like use language in the apps and all these different things and what the impacts of that is. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, us, us smaller businesses, we don't have that luxury. Um, and sometimes it, it seems like it would be really nice just to be able to say, Oh, I, I, I would like to just give this to the documentation person. Um, yeah, but- I think kind of, um, I think that's a, that's definitely an area for growth, like in, in the, the startup world, I think there will there are some now, but there will tend to be more companies that that specialize in big data and um, specifically like like f- creating insight from giant sets of numbers. So it's going to be like I hope it's going to be uh, like available for small businesses to where you can like throw all your data in some system and then over time uh, get some analysis to help guide you because it's that's the kind of stuff that like right now you have to be a specialist to to know how to do but if you could outsource it that would be awesome kind of like i guess 
in the way that Amazon and EC2 has revolutionized, like the creating an internet startup at all. Now that it's so much cheaper, like you don't have to buy your own servers and get your own colo, um, like the way you did back in the late '90s, early 2000s. Now you can you can just you know start up an instance and have a server. I think uh, it's going to be kind of akin to that. Like being able to understand data is going to become more automatic and easier. I hope. Yeah, well, I, a lot of there's a lot of progress on 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 many fronts with all manner of software development and distribution, and you know, like you said, powering the back ends of these things. Um, you know, and and like specifically, somebody who comes to mind is like Lauren Brichter with Letterpress. You have a situation where it's a an app that. 10 years ago would have been impossible, well, even five years ago probably would have been impossible for one person to reasonably put together when you consider the back end with the game center and all that networking stuff that has to mm-hmm. go on and be supported and be able to scale to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of users. And um, I guess uh, those kinds of things are also making it, you know, the fact that somebody like Lauren could make an app, not just an app, but a game on his own and be such a success. Is that something that is, does that, does that attract you at all? The idea of like doing your own self-branded stuff that you just try to put out there and see how it flies? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I, I did do something like that earlier before, after I left Zynga. Um, actually this is the reason I left Zynga to start this company. Um, and before I started, uh, Meteor Grove. Um, I started a company uh, called Hyperspace, and we made a game called Turf Geography Club. Um, so that was kind of uh, that was a step into me making my own stuff with my my co-founders. Um, and now I've taken a, a step away from that. The problem is, um, I think funding. <laughs> like we at uh, for Turf, we were fortunate. We got. Um, quite a bit of interest from angels and and VCs. Um, And so we were able to fund it. But I think for a lot of people, um, it's generally going to be a labor of love. Like you'll have to carve out time in your life where you're you're also working a day job to make something that's all your own. And something like Letterpress, you know, you can look at it and think this is a great app. This is this is a great game. It's fun. But you can also look at it and see how despite all of the attention to performance and attention to aesthetic detail that Lauren put into it, it doesn't have like that depth of graphics um, assets and like, Mm -hmm. you know, sheer data that I'm sure some of the more ambitious games, you really do need to have funding to develop that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, turf was a, uh, a way more complicated game than letterpress. Like it all, it really all depends on the, the style of game you're trying to create. Like letterpress has is super simple. There's there's very few rules, but that's um, that's part of the power of why it's such a great game. Um, other games like I don't know World of Warcraft or Turf Geography Club, <laughs> where um, they're really massively multiplayer and uh, turf was location based. Um, it just took a lot more time and a lot more artist effort for sure. Um, so yeah, I guess it, it all depends on the, the style of game you're trying to make. 
So what was the give, give us like a little like high level view of what what the turf geography club gameplay was like? Um, so basically, it's a uh, it's a location based game, sort of like uh, sort of like um, dodge, dodgeball or something. Is, is that the, yeah? What's the other one that, that came after four, dodgeball? Foursquare, right? Foursquare, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a, it's a cross between. Foursquare and Monopoly is kind of how we uh, concepted it. Um, it uh, so you you go to a place like your your local coffee shop and you you check in there in the in the game um, on the little map in game and uh, then you have then you can potentially become the owner of that place and when you're the owner you can decorate it in game like you'll see a little coffee shop first floor and then you can add floors on top of that um, that are like pink with blue glass windows or or whatever um so it was kind of half a decorating game and half like a like take over the world <laughs> the the fictional representation of the world game right when you when you uh when you describe it that way i i uh, you mentioned much earlier in the show that when you were a kid, one of the things you did was play muds uh, mm-hmm. multi user dungeons, which for folks who aren't familiar with those they're sort of uh um well when i played them they were text-based i don't know if they were when yeah when, uh, yeah yeah so um but the a component of that is this ability to sort of build onto the world um at least when i was playing them we could you could use like a kind of like a crude programming language to do so um mm-hmm. but um this is kind of uh this is the, the way you're describing turf geography club it sort of sounds like four square Plus, you can kind of build in kind of mud stuff. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of an interesting connection, I think. Yeah, for in the very beginning, I considered using a mud as the back end, back end for it. It didn't end up working out to make sense. We we rolled our own back back end, um, but yeah, there's definitely some parallels there. So, uh, um, uh, Amanda, you grew up uh, in Saudi Arabia, lar- uh, you know, largely, um, traveled to California to go to high school, traveled to Tulane University in New Orleans, traveled to University of Arizona. Um, the last time I saw you in person was in Manhattan. You were living in Brooklyn, I believe, mm-hmm. and now you are traveling around, uh, you know, you're traveling around mostly the United States, I think, and living in relatively short-term housing, Mm -hmm. it sort of sounds like you're just taking advantage of the fact that, like you said, you don't have one of these typical going into a corporate office jobs. You're working for yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. You can work from home and home can be anywhere. So how has that been working out as far as like establishing um you know, as you move from place to place, I know. I think you. I think you mentioned to me before the show that you had lived as long as maybe four months in uh, the Tahoe area. Yeah. But it's more or less. It's more often been much shorter stays than that. Is that right? Well, actually, we just started doing this at uh, the end of December of last year, so it's only been a few months that we've been mobile. Um, we left Brooklyn and uh, we moved to Lake Tahoe in California to. Um, ski and snowboard for the winter and both timothy and i are um independent contractors so uh and we both work remotely for clients um so it just kind of worked out that way we we both like we did this on purpose we set up our our 
careers so that we can uh, work remotely and choose our clients and work from wherever we want to. So that's what we're doing. And how does that work out in practice? Um, kind of a step. I, ma- I imagine you must both be living relatively light as far as you know personal possessions. And, mm-hmm. um, does that mean you're both kind of like? Is, is your office a, a MacBook Pro and a yep. whatever desk you can find? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. We just kind of like hope when we get to a place that it has a desk. <laughs> Fortunately, uh, well, at our place in Tahoe, we we're we we're both working on like the um, like bar stools that like uh part of the kitchen was like a like a bar thing and there were bar stools so we uh-huh. set up our computers there that so you both had to, had to work on your postures as you uh yeah <laughs> as you worked on the, there. but it, it it was cool because they kind of doubled as a standing desk like it was kind of the right height if you just right. took away the chair you can do the standing desk thing <laughs> which i tried to force myself to do a lot but i kind of hate it even though it's good for me <laughs> Yeah, I have a um, I have a standing desk that I I just I just got a year or so ago, and I'm sitting right now. I find it very hard to um, podcast while standing for some reason, but mm-hmm. uh, it's nice to be able to have the option to stand. Um, uh, but but anyway, so you 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 are still sort of early on in this idea of not having a permanent home. Do you think this is something that will go on for a while? Are you, are you feeling inspired by it to keep going or are you getting kind of exhausted by it already? How's it feeling? Um, yeah, for the foreseeable future, we're going to keep doing this. We're in, um, Long Beach, California right now. Uh, we just got here a week ago and, uh, we're about three blocks from the beach. So it's nice to be able to like, uh, take a break during the day and just like go sit on the beach. Um, that's why we chose this place. And uh, next, we're not sure where we're going to go. Um, there's a lot of contenders. Maybe San Francisco, because Timothy might have a, a job there. Um, and maybe Austin, because we've got a lot of friends there. And yeah, it's just really up in the air. That's about two months from now. We're going to have to <laughs> figure out where to go next. But um, yeah, we we sold or gave away most of our possessions when we left Brooklyn and we put some stuff in storage and now we've got um, a couple of duffel bags and some boxes of stuff and our cat and that all fits in our car and that's what we're traveling with. That's pretty great. Um, as as it happens, by the way, I was born in Long Beach, California, so <laughs> you were very close to my, my roots there. Um, cool. And uh, I, I think that I can relate to your sort of um, ability and desire to just kind of pick up and travel because as I've become a programmer and more and more digital in the things that I do and the things that I keep, you know, I scan things. I mm-hmm. A lot of stuff fits in a MacBook Pro, as it turns out. Mm-hmm. And I could I could kind of see myself like not needing that much. Um, and it's it must be kind of just nice to, um, you know, you can cleaning up your house is like packing all your stuff back into your suitcases practically right yeah yeah it takes uh you know just an hour or so to like run around the house and find everything that's that's mine and not you know the owner of the houses (laughs) put it all in a bag and go also having a kindle is nice because i used to have a ton of books and now i have uh zero physical books (laughs) so that's pretty great yeah it's yeah the music you don't have CDs you don't have mm-hmm. books you don't have all these different things and uh you can uh, just set up shop wherever you go um i guess you'll end up uh eventually getting back towards 
is your stuff in storage in New York? Um, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> so you'll get back up to that part of the country eventually and uh, decide whether you want to uh, do a silent auction for all your stuff that's in storage or whether you actually want to crack it back open again. Yeah. Yeah, eventually. All right. Well, Amanda, uh, I think we should probably wrap this up. It's been really fun talking to you, learning about your childhood in Saudi Arabia and traveling, of course, all the way over to beautiful Pebble Beach for high school and uh, how you kind of got hooked into the programming bug. It's really cool to hear about uh, the way that uh, it was just sort of irresistible to you when you saw your friends working on the computer science work. And now you have had the opportunity to share your talents with lots of different people. I, I think the number of people who have not played a Zynga game is <laughs> very, very small. So mm-hmm. um, congratulations to you on a successful career. And I'm uh, thank you a little, a little jealous of your uh, current traveling <laughs> lifestyle. Uh, and I hope you continue to have fun doing that. Thanks. I will try to. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, if you want to keep up with Amanda, you can find her on Twitter at uh, Commanda, C-O-M-M-A-N-D-A. And uh, Amanda, are there other things online you want to point people to? Do you have a company site or a personal site that you uh, yeah, like my, to share? Yeah, my personal site is just amandawickstead.com. It's got links to all my other things. And my uh, professional site is meteorgrove.com. Great. Okay, well, uh, thanks again, Amanda. It's been great talking to you. Thanks. Great talking to you. This has been Bit Splitting with Daniel Jalkett and Amanda Wixted. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review or rating in the iTunes podcast directory. You can find links and other show notes at the podcast homepage, bitsplitting.org slash podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.